This special episode of the podcast is all about Qatar. Its history, its current situation, its good sides, and its dark sides. This is PSG Talking. So, you're a PSG fan, but you're not French. Little by little, you're gleaning what you can about Parisian and French culture, and now, considering what's happening in the Gulf with Qatar, you're probably a little confused about what to think when somebody jokes about your team's oil money. See, being a sports fan nowadays is easier than ever. It's a cosmopolitan thing. We can't characterize all Real Madrid or Manchester United or PSG fans as one thing culturally, because there's supporters to be found in every corner of the earth. That's further complicated by club ownership. Uh, big clubs need money, and that's, that money frequently comes from foreign moguls looking to invest. PSG's case is particularly special, given the club's close ties to the Qatari government. But why? What's in it for them? Is it all just profit, or does sinking endless money into a football team serve a cultural purpose? There's never been an easy answer to these questions, maybe one or two op-eds in The Guardian or The Economist. For European clubs like PSG, there's even less English-language scholarship. The confusion about where the money comes from and why is especially present among PSG fans, so we wanted to take an episode to really dig into the issue and try to demystify the situation in Qatar. This podcast episode is not strictly limited to football. For those of you only interested in how Qatar relates to the club, we've provided timestamps in the description. We'll certainly get there. This is PSG talking, not NPR. But first, we found it necessary to contextualize Qatar's political and financial situation within the Middle East in the modern day. We've done a lot of research, and we want to provide as unbiased a voice as possible. George Orwell said we're all partisans in our own way, but really we're just trying to do something in English that people haven't done before. We're joined by Guillaume, my podcast co-host, and professors Peter Bartu of UC Berkeley and Paul Michael Brannigan of Manchester Metropolitan University. Take it away, G. What images come to your mind when we hear the word Qatar? The desert, the heat, men wearing that long white garment, women wearing that long black coat. Yeah, the call to prayer. Maybe a skyline of ultramodern skyscrapers. These images are manufactured and relayed by our own media, by our movies or news outlets. And they have a strong influence on how we perceive this country. In this day and age, news, articles about Qatar in the press, on TV or online, are often either pro or anti-Qatar. Most have an agenda. At PSG Talking, we don't. Well... Some of us have a strong and ridiculous anti-Maria bias, but that's a totally different issue. And frankly, it's no big deal. We publish articles about Paris Saint-Germain because we love the club and we love writing about it. We do these podcasts about PSG because we love the team and we love talking about it. Not because we have to or because a boss is paying us to do so. So like David said, we did our research, we took our time, 
we try to figure out what Qatar is, what Qatar was, and maybe what Qatar will be by ourselves. Thank God for the internet and Wikipedia. By the way, please contribute to Wikipedia, like even $3 a year. They take PayPal. So we will start the podcast with a short history of Qatar. You have to understand where they're coming from. We tried our best not to make it a lecture. That was difficult because, as it turns out, I love giving lectures for some reason. So here it is. I really hope you enjoy it. The nation of Qatar has been in the limelight since it was announced in 2010 that it got the 2022 World Cup. The following year, Qatar purchased Paris Saint-Germain and acquired football megastars like Zlatan Ibrahimovic and more recently Neymar. This has been great for the Qatari government. The country has been trying to improve its international image for decades. But for Qatar... Being in the spotlight also means that its human rights abuse and its financial supports of groups like the Muslim Brotherhood have also come to light. For most of its history, Qatar was a major center for fishing and pearl diving. It's fair to say that, in general, through history, when you're a small but successful trading center with few people and few defenses, uh, you're going to go through some difficulties from time to time. Thanks to its location on the Gulf, the British threw resources into Qatar in the hopes of protecting their trading interests. In 1820, Qatar signed a trade agreement with British India and seven other tribes on the Gulf Coast, a treaty that would ultimately lead to the creation of the United Arab Emirates in the 1970s. But Qatar would not be part of the Emirates due to the Ottoman takeover in 1871, which replaced British rule. After the fall of the Ottoman Empire at the end of World War I, Abdullah Al Thani, a familiar name for many PSG fans, took control of Qatar. Al Thani signed over most of Qatar's political autonomy to the British in exchange for their military protection. World War I created a booming market for oil, and after Saudi Arabia, oil is discovered in Qatar in 1938. And that changed the fate of the nation and the region as a whole forever. As the West scrambled to exploit oil discoveries in the Middle East, Shell oil companies sank huge amounts of money into Qatar, building up the infrastructure the country needed to support an oil industry. Even the Qatar's local government was propped up by it. When the first government budgets were drawn up by a British advisor in the 1950s, Qatar had a grand total of 43 government employees. Shell dug deeper to find more oil. And they did, a little bit. 
but they mainly discovered huge reserves of natural gas. Because there was no way to pipeline natural gas, and there was no real market for it, Shell no longer felt their investment in the region was worthwhile. So they left. Coincidence or not, within a few years of Shell leaving, Qatar shook off British control and declared its independence in 1971. This perfectly fine anthem was replaced in 1995 by a real shaky one for some reason. But back to our timeline. The oil boom brought wealth to Qatar. The children of fishermen and pearl divers were now being educated at public universities. Qatar was sitting on biblical amounts of natural gas. And soon after its independence, it started promoting liquefied natural gas as an alternative energy source, a move that would prove incredibly lucrative in the future. January 17, 1991. Operation Desert Storm begins. War is on CNN. Uh, something is happening outside. Um, the skies over Baghdad have been illuminated. We're seeing bright flashes going off all over the sky. I see a tremendous amount of anti-aircraft fire uh, aimed towards the sky, and yet another... As part of the coalition against Saddam Hussein's Iraq, Qatar was an important player in the Gulf War. In an odd turn of events, U.S. troops ended up protecting Saudi forces from friendly fire coming from the Hamad Brigade, Qatari troops commanded by Hamad al-Thani. In June of 1995, Ahmed al-Thani led a bloodless coup against his father and announced his intentions to create a more democratic and liberal Qatar. Over the next few years, Qatar would see major political and economic reforms. Health, education, topping the list. After the BBC shut down its Arabic language station in the 90s due to the Saudi government's attempt to censor it, Althani launched Al Jazeera. Its name means the peninsula, which is what Qatar is. During the 2003 invasion of Iraq, the Baghdad offices of Al Jazeera are hit by a US bomb. Two journalists are killed. Unintentionally, says the US. Message received said Al Jazeera. Same year, Qatar starts building at a cost of a billion dollars the Al-Udid Air Base. The U.S. will first use the then-secret base in late September 2001 when the Air Force needs to get air support for its operations in Afghanistan. 
In April 2003, shortly after the start of the U.S.-led invasion of Iraq, the U.S. Combat Air Operations Center for the Middle East moves from the Prince Sultan Air Base in Saudi Arabia to the new Qatari base. In June 2013, Sheikh Hamad bin Khalifa stepped down as Emir of Qatar and transferred leadership to his son and heir, Sheikh Tamim bin Hamad Al Thani, you know, the guy above Nasser. Today, this country, smaller than the state of Connecticut, possesses the world's third largest gas reserves behind Iran and Russia. Qataris? With Saddam's invasion of Kuwait, I've witnessed what can happen to a tiny but incredibly wealthy Gulf nation. Today, they're doing everything they can in their soft power to prevent such a thing from ever happening to them. David, it looks like Qatar is going to be fine, isn't it? Well, to give you an idea, today about 39% of total produced electrical wattage comes from coal, 22% comes from natural gas, 17% hydroelectric, 11% nuclear, 5% oil, and 7% other. Because natural gas has a relatively low environmental impact, especially compared to coal and oil, world consumption is projected to more than double over the next three decades, rising to about 30% of the world total primary energy demand by 2030, and surpassing coal as the world's number two energy source. It'll overtake oil in many large industrial economies. This is relevant because the Qatari people are sitting on about 900 trillion cubic feet of natural gas. Based on the volume that the country is currently exporting, it's got about 150 years' worth of gas below its surface. Qatar is already the world's leading exporter of liquefied natural gas, and its biggest customers are Japan, South Korea, and India. The European market will be reachable if if a Qatar-Turkey pipeline is ever constructed. 2.5 million people live in Qatar, but only about 300,000 of them are Qatari nationals. That's the population of Coventry or Bradford in England, or of Toledo or Bakersfield in the U.S., or of Nice in France. That's why Qatar is the richest country per capita in the world. This wasn't the case just a few decades ago. Here's how a British resident describes Doha in 1940, as related by Alan Frommertz in his book, Qatar, A Modern History. Doha is little more than a miserable fishing village, straggling along the coast for several miles and more than half in ruins. Its market consists of mean fly-infested hovels, the roads are dusty tracks, There's no electricity, and the people have to fetch their water in skins and cans from wells two or three miles outside the town. Qatari citizens, who were at one time reduced to starvation by the collapse of the pearl market, now enjoy air-conditioned homes, five-star hotels, world-class shopping, and world-class universities. But if wealth has deeply transformed Qatari society, in many ways it's still the same. The names, social networks, loyalties, and habits are still anchored in the past, back when it was a very different country. To understand Qatar, says Alan Frommertz, it's important to understand not just the image of rapid change and progress that's projected to the outside world, but the much slower-moving internal structures of Qatari society. Althani's father graduated from the British Royal Military Academy at Sandhurst, England in 1971. 
His Western education is an exception among the ruling families, and the non-ruling tribes of Qatar remember their past and are careful to transmit that past even to the most westernized of their sons. While genealogy in the West has become an internet hobby, ancestry and genealogy in Qatar are the most important indicators of social positions, status, and rights. You see where we're going with this. In Qatar, despite enormous economic changes, many individual Qataris are still grouped according to that lineage, that tribal hierarchy. Imagine if you're not Qatari, not part of a tribe, not a Westerner, just a migrant worker. But we'll come back to that in a moment. Qatar is not the only Gulf state to go through impressive growth and wealth. Bahrain, a two-hour drive up the coast through Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait, another five-hour drive, are also among the richest countries in the world per capita. So are the United Arab Emirates, a five-hour drive south, and Saudi Arabia. These aforementioned countries are culturally and ethnically very close, and the families, the houses who have been ruling directly or indirectly these Gulf states, have done so since about the mid-18th century. They're all cousins. But no other country is so close to Qatar as Saudi Arabia is. The Saud's influence in Qatar is preserved through other prominent families, most notably that of the Atiyahs, who are their blood relatives. Hamad al-Thani was brought up not by other al-Thanis, but in the house of his maternal uncle, an Atiyah. think it's like a family business down there. Well, it is. See, Qatar has been blockaded since June 2017 by a Saudi-led coalition. The land border's been sealed, Qatari overflights banned, and shipping lanes closed. This coalition made 13 demands. Shut down Al Jazeera. Sever all alleged ties with the Muslim Brotherhood and other groups including Hezbollah, restrict diplomatic and economic relations with Iran, and pay a huge fine and reparation for... Qatar's policies. U.S. Secretary of State Rex Tillerson insisted that Qatar's neighbors provided a list of demands that was reasonable and actionable. The demands documents do not specify what the countries will do if Qatar refuses to comply because it's already done so. But family feud has been the norm these past decades between these rich Gulf states, and diplomats in the region say the issues can't be resolved partly because they're not just political, they're personal too. blockade is unprecedented. It's a mess. So to help us understand what's going on, we interviewed Professor Peter Bartu. Dr. Bartu teaches courses at the University of California, Berkeley on political transitions in the Middle East, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and the Gulf states. In 2011, he was a member of the UN's mediation team and worked in Benghazi and Tripoli during the Libyan Revolution. From 2001 to 2003, he was a political advisor to the UN Special Coordinator for the Middle East Peace Process. He's also worked as a foreign policy advisor in the Australian Prime Minister's Department. We reached him at his home in Berkeley, California, early January. The interview was done over Skype. For all of you international relations aficionados, the complete interview is available on our blog as a separate file. That was an abridged version. 
Peter Bartu, thank you so much for being with us today. Uh, this is a great honor. I'm not going to waste any time and go straight to the point of our interview. Qatar has been blockaded, more or less, by a coalition of countries led by Saudi Arabia. And um, relations between Qatar and Saudi Arabia have been very difficult these past 20 years or so. But this is uh, unprecedented. So, uh, Peter, what do you think the main sources of, of contention between these two countries are? And what do you think Saudi Arabia is trying to achieve with this uh, blockade? Well, it's my pleasure, firstly, to join you here today and to talk about this interesting topic. It certainly is an unprecedented moment uh, in the history of the GCC, the Gulf Cooperation Council countries, of which Saudi and, and Qatar are key members. But you're right, there is a, there is a deeper history uh, to the current uh, situation they confront. Uh, it goes back, I guess, to the mid-1990s when uh, Sheikh Hamad bin Khalifa Al Thani took over or took power in Qatar with the bloodless coup in 1995 against his father while his father was on holiday in Switzerland. Um, Sheikh Hamad is widely seen, Al Thani is widely seen as being the sort of father of modern Qatar. Remember, it's a very young country. It only achieved independence from the United Kingdom at the end of the 1960s. So it's a young country. But it, through this bloodless coup in 1995, the Saudis were upset, uh, as were the United Arab Emirates, that the succession in the Qatari royal family had happened in that manner. The Saudis supported a rival faction within the Tani family to try and replace Sheikh Hamad uh, in 1996. So this was seen as, 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 you know, this is historical and personal and it's contemporary and questions of succession and who should take uh, power are very, very important in, in the various constellations of different family groups within each state and so forth. But in, in, in the meantime, after the 1990s, when Sheikh Hamad both defeats his father, takes power, is able to fend off the challenge from, from uh, a rival branch of the family, he then particularly through um, the late 1990s and then into the t early 2000s really seeks to place Qatar in an influential role in the region. And it's able to do this because of its vast oil and particularly gas reserves. Um, and it, it laid the kind of institutional basis through a new constitution in Qatar in early 2003, which uh, identified Qatar as, uh, you know, a, a within the constitution as a country of influence in the region that needed to have a, uh, a key role in, in shaping the environment. Its 2003 constitution actually has provision or describes Qatar as a regional mediator, which is quite an interesting, uh, you know, constitutional provision, and it's unusual that, that you see this in other... It's, it's in the constitution um, of Qatar that they are a regional re mediator. Mediator, that's right. So huh. it, 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 it gave itself this, this sort of role of uh, being able to intervene or, or provide advice uh, to uh, all players in the region. And I think initially it was done with the best of intentions. Right. This, this, of course, is happening while in parallel you have the establishment of Al Jazeera in 1996, which also uh, drawing on, on um, you know, experienced BBC staff and others did create a minor revolution in the region by bringing fresh news and, and quite ambitious and unbiased programming, at least initially as well. 
Yeah. So Qatar is suddenly looking to be a you know a country of the future, but as Egypt and, and the Syrians and the Iraqis and these other centres of Arab uh, culture and, and and political power start to diminish, um, the way is open for for Qatar uh, to emerge and and come forward. So, but this was this was recognised uh, apart from sort of the occasional open dispute about uh, particularly Al Jazeera programming and coverage of events in Saudi and elsewhere. This growing strength in Qatar is, is kind of just acknowledged and dealt with and not wasn't seen as that threatening uh, really to the Saudis or, or the UAE either. However, all of this changes, of course, with the Arab Spring in uh, late 2010 and 2011 where Qatar was seen as, as having moved perhaps from being uh, in a mediating role, talking to all parties, to being more of an active interferer by providing more support perhaps to political parties that grew out of the Islamic social movement, the Muslim Brotherhood. Right. So, and Qatar did this, I think, on the basis for two reasons. One was that they, they saw that um, these parties were the most organised and they would provide the basis for which Qatar could actually gain most by openly supporting them. Would, would Qatar would gain most influence in shaping the region uh, moving forward? And well, it worked. This, in, it worked in Egypt because, well, originally the, the Muslim Brotherhood was was actually elected in, in a somewhat democratic election. Yes. Uh, no. Absolutely. I mean, it. it uh, this provides um, the. If we can think of Qatar's, you know, emergence through the 2000s and then its, 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 its sort of arc of influence, I would say that after the election of Morsi in Egypt, this Muslim Brotherhood government, um, we see the sort of zenith or the, the moment of triumph for Qatar is, is in 2013 right. when it, it, it seems that it can influence everything in the region. And, of course, the, the reaction from the Saudis and the Emirates finally is one of alarm. And so they actually helped support the coup in Egypt in 2013 to bring down the government of Morsi, replace it with General Sisi's government. And this is also when we see the first open uh, challenge to the Qataris because it's in 2013 that the Saudis and the Emirates finally publicly tell the government of Qatar to stop being so proactive, and in fact, they withdraw their ambassadors uh, from Qatar at this moment. Uh, also, we see a very interesting convergence. They, they've done that and, a few times in the past fifteen years, as a matter of fact. Withdraw, right. Withdrawing their ambassadors from Qatar and then back in and then back out. It's been um, a tumultuous relationship. Indeed, and many allegations have been made about the Qataris supporting intelligent uh, terrorist groups and so on and so forth. And, and these issues have been negotiated 2013, 2014 in particular. And that comes down to three things for all the different accusations. The, the first is that the Saudis and the Emirates do not want Qatar to have an independent foreign policy. They have to take decisions in uh, a consensus manner under the arrangements of the Gulf Cooperation Council. Secondly, the Qataris are not to support the Muslim Brotherhood or any other Islamic movements in, who take part in election politics. 
And then thirdly, the coverage by Al Jazeera, particularly in, in, in its Arabic uh, content, has to be less favourable to the Muslim Brotherhood and less uh, critical of what Saudi Arabia is doing and what the United Arab Emirates is doing. So, so those three things you, are, are very important. You, 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 uh, are, you are actually listing some of the demands. There's a 13-point demands correct. that was forwarded to the state of Qatar by the Saudi-led coalition, which is the, the GCC uh, countries plus Egypt. And yeah. all, the, all those demands are, um, I mean, there's, there's quite a few more, like severing relations with Iran. Um, they, they look very irrealistic. Correct. So, so most of them are unrealistic. But uh, the, as I said, my view is that the, the, the three most important ones, and these are the ones which, which the Qataris will have to meet in some way. They said no already, is, I think. They said well, they've been, they've been, they've, it, it's, it's, uh, the blockade continues and they haven't been able to uh, resolve the crisis despite mediation by the United States, the Kuwaitis, and, and the Europeans and others. So that's very interesting that it's continued. But bottom line is no independent foreign policy, no support to the Muslim Brotherhood, and wind back uh, coverage by Al Jazeera. The, in my view, Qatar will have to move on these in some way if it's to be welcomed back by the Saudis and the Emirates and vice versa, the Saudis and the Emirates will have to work out a formula to where they can both climb down from their pole as it were. But, but these, these are, these are the big three right. and, they're, and they're very serious. But like, like you say, a lot of the accusations are, uh, non-negotiable or, or, or very difficult to, to actually embrace in a, in a serious way. I so, mean, do, do you think Saudi? Ooh, we're hearing some noise in the background. So, okay, um, do you think Saudi Arabia is putting enough pressure on Qatar so it it actually um, co concedes a few of these demands? And 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 second question within my question: How long do you think this blockade? Can last. What, what exactly Saudi Arabia is trying to achieve here? Because also there's a, there's a sort of clock ticking, which is the 2022 World Cup hosted by Qatar, which will be the official arrival of Qatar on the world stage. So, um, they started the blockade four years before the World Cup, which is a little bit odd. Maybe, maybe there was some, the, 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 the Trump's visit to Saudi Arabia. Recently, maybe was um, the reason why they, they, they started the blockade. Who, who knows? But what what do you think Saudi Arabia is trying to achieve, and how long that blockade can last? Uh, very good. Um, so I, I'm not sure they they were inserted the blockade in the context of the World Cup in 2022, but uh, right. they had a few other reasons. <laughs> um, it's um, the the first thing is is. The, the most important variable here, I think, is that you did have that transition from the Obama administration to the Trump administration, and, and the, this coincided with the changes where uh, you had the succession in Saudi after January 2015 with the passing of Abdullah bin Abdulaziz being replaced by King Salman. And what, what essentially has happened in Saudi over the last two years leading up to the blockade against Qatar in June is this transition by which uh, Mohammed bin Salman is effectively been and is now legally the 
uh, crown prince. So he will succeed uh, his father, King Salman. It may happen very, very shortly. And this very young man at the age of 32, 33 could become king of Saudi Arabia right. for many, many decades to come. So, so, so and it's a very good point because we see that, that when we look at the internal dynamics in Saudi, the, there's a clear, um, this, the, the, this King Salman and Mohammed bin Salman clearly used the moment of, uh, Trump's visit to Saudi in May to, um, enlist US support for their vision of a region, uh, which they see the Saudi Saudis play and the Emirates playing uh, a key role in, you know, what shape it will take and so forth. And they, they initially, and it, it, it's, there are gaps within the different institutions within the United States as to how to respond to the blockade that is in place in June after Trump's visit. So Rex Tillerson, who's the US uh, State Department uh, chief, formerly of ExxonMobil, has spent 10 years visiting Qatar, knows the family very well. Uh, ExxonMobil helped turn Qatar into the gas giant that it is. Um, and the State Department is, in a way, caught off guard with the blockade, uh, responds quite angrily to, in, in, in public, you know, Saudis, what are you doing? Uh, and the same remarks come from the Pentagon and, and other parts of uh, the U.S., you know, separate to the White House, as you know, that's a different institution. So, you know, it's not very clear that the U.S. was actually aware of what would unfold. And the U.S. also had, you know, lots of interests in Qatar. Qatar hosts the largest U.S. military base, and and uh, this provides a degree of protection for the Qataris. But But all of this is to say, you know, to come back to your question of what is it that the Saudis were hoping to achieve through this blockade? Well, what we know for sure is that they want Qatar to be less independent. They want them to stop supporting the Muslim Brotherhood. They want them to uh, curb Al Jazeera. But then the question was, was the blockade the right way to try and achieve all of these objectives? Um, the blockade has put, pushed Qatar into uh, closer relationships with Iran yes. and, to, and Turkey. Um, it was, supposed, a, it was a, supposed to do the opposite, actually, if you... Indeed, yes. indeed. It couldn't actually be that Qatar emerges from this uh, in a stronger position at the end of the day. Um, but, you know, we still have some... It's still too early to call, but uh, so far, so good. And right. the, the, the question is, what do the Saudis do next? Well, what can they do? What can they do? There's not much else they can do. The next step would be a military intervention. I mean, they, they don't have that much leverage. They shut down borders. Um, mm -hmm. They removed their diplomatic relations with, with Qatar. Um, they, they have the rest of the GCC countries with them. But that doesn't seem to affect Qatar's economy that much, which is apparently still growing. Um, Qatar's clients in terms of you know, gas production are um, uh, India, um, uh, Korea, Japan. They have nothing to do with the GCC countries. Um, OPEC cannot stop Qatar from producing gas. What else, what else can happen? Um, Very good. Yeah, no, that, that's, uh, I, I agree with you. That there's, uh, there was an indication that... Um, 
there were there was a possibility of military intervention by the Saudis and the Emirates. That this was indeed talked about uh, in wow. May this year. Seriously, uh, we, we we understand this to be the case from leaked uh, emails uh, and so forth. Um, this we is, know that uh, this is serious. we know that this is very serious. It yeah. was very serious. Yeah. Um, we know that there was uh, and has been an effort, particularly by the UAE to sponsor a rival branch of the Altani family mm. in the UK to prepare them to potentially replace Sheikh Tamim. But uh, the the realities of both military intervention, that's off the table, not just because of the American presence in Qatar, but because the Turkey has also increased its military presence. Well, that's one of the, of the points of the, the, the demands that the GCC are asking Qatar to stop the building of the Turkish air base, which is being built as we speak. Right. And doesn't look like that's going to happen either. Well, as you know, one, one of the interesting aspects of most of the governing regimes in the Gulf is that they, is the extent to which they rely on external patrons for their own support because right. of the degree of, you know, relative distrust between them all, uh, particularly in, in this, in this moment. Um, but yeah, no, 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 Qatar seems to have survived. Um, Thank you Good. so much, Peter. This is really wonderful. Okay. Um, I really hope our listeners enjoyed this as much as I did. Qatar Gate. The winner. El ganador para organizar la Copa FIFA del 2022 es Qatar. Escándalo político y deportivo de aparente corrupción. It is, it is done. Neymar is on his way to PSG. Barcelona uh, receiving the money. The release clause activated. Uh, 222 million euros. The combination of these things allied to something else. The power of example. The attraction. What, in other words, people like to call soft power. It's essentially the ability of a country to attract others because of its culture, its political values, its foreign policies. And probably Hollywood and MTV and McDonald's have done more for American soft power around the world than any specifically government activity. Uh, what? The Qatari government bought Paris Saint-Germain to improve its image? It's, it's called what? Soft power? Is it true? Well, I think the simple answer is yes. Okay, 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 okay. Hold on. Stop with this samba shit. So Qatar Investment Authority, the country's wealth fund that bought PSG, invested a lot all over Western Europe and the US... Um, they're the biggest property owners in London. They own 20% of British Airways, 17% of Volkswagen, 13% of Barclays, and have a fair amount of shares in a quite impressive list of Fortune 500 companies. But they bought PSG for their image? How does that work? Their image seems to be in shambles at the moment. Well, let's ask an expert. Paul Michael Brannigan is Program Lead for Manchester Metropolitan University's Master of Science in Sports Business, Management and Policy. He's a political sociologist specialized in the study of sports media events by national governments, 
for achieving certain political, economic, social, and or cultural objectives. To date, Paul's research has centered most specifically on sport in the Middle East, with a particular focus on the state of Qatar and its staging of the 2022 FIFA World Cup. Paul's research has been published in some of the leading political science and sports studies journals. We reached him at his house in the Manchester area in England. The interview was done over Skype earlier in January this year. Paul Michael Brannigan, thank you so much for joining us today. This is, this is brilliant. I'm very uh, excited to have you. Um, football fans are used to corporations financing professional sport teams to increase sales and improve their image, but they are not quite yet used to countries acquiring football teams. They're also getting familiar with the concept of soft power, but its actual meaning is still quite unclear. Was the acquisition of Paris Saint-Germain in 2011 by Qatar Investment Authority an act of soft power? And what is soft power, anyway? Well, to answer your question, yes. Uh, in my research, I have argued that Paris Saint-Germain, the acquisition in 2011 by Qatar, uh, was most certainly um, a tool for soft power for the country. Um, which really comes back to the second question, well, what is soft power? So soft power is the ability to get what you want through attraction rather than coercion. So if I wanted to, for example, get you to do something that I wanted, there are really a number of ways I could do that. I could do it through hard power, which would be I could force you physically to do it. I may punch you, for example, or I may bribe you. I may give you some sort of handout if, if I have more money than you, for example, But there's this other way that I can get you to do what I want you to do, which is if I can attract you. So if I can be physically attractive, but more importantly, if, for example, I can be attractive through, for example, charisma um, or leadership, whatever that may be. So soft power is getting you to do what I want you to do through simply being attractive. Now, for countries they tend to try and do both. They try and tend to have hard power. So we look at the United States, for example, great military, um, you know, huge economy, but they'll also try and have soft power. We look at the, the US and Hollywood films, for example, McDonald's as you know, attractive qualities mm. in our lives. Now look at Qatar, very, very small country, one of the smallest countries in Asia, has a population of 3 million, but only 300,000, so only 10% of that three million are actually Qataris who the state has to answer to. And it has very, very, very limited hard power in terms of military capabilities. So what it does is it basically, you know, um, outsources its military um, to the US really for protection. But what it does have is a huge, huge, huge financial reserve, mainly through the sale of oil, but also natural gas. So what Qatar are looking to do now is extend their power. They can't really extend it through military. So what else can they do? How can they use this cash in a good way and a way that benefits the country? And in my research, I've argued that the focus here is on soft power. So look at Al Jazeera, for example. Look at all the buildings that Qatar owns in London, for example. But there's something, there's something bigger than this. There's something within that soft power strategy, which is absolutely key. It's Qatar's niche, and that is global sport. So you look at all of the events the, the, the state is hosting, whether it's handball championships, athletic championships or the World Cup, 
Or you look at all the global sport that Qatar is buying up and getting involved in as well. It's, it's substantial. So, you know, for, for me, I think that Qatar is a serial soft power user of sport. Right. Uh, most certainly. So, yes, I think it's a you look at Paris Saint-Germain, you know, Qatar, I think, were very strategic in actually acquiring Paris Saint-Germain. It's the only club in Europe or one of the very few clubs in Europe that doesn't have a rival in the city. So you look at the Barcelonas, the Madrids, the Londons, the Manchesters of the world. They've all got more than one club where they have to compete locally. You know, in Paris, you have Paris Saint-Germain. And it's fantastic. Paris is a very elusive city. It's looked up to be in terms of soft power. You know, when you think of Paris, you think of fashion, you think of good food, whatever it may be. It's a very, very cultural and stylish city. So I think the fact that Qatar have been also able to dominate the French league as well. You know, I think Paris Saint-Germain for Qatar has been an absolutely fantastic soft power tool. Yeah, there's... Um... There's a rumor that, you know, there's a famous picture of, of Neymar with the Paris Saint-Germain shirt and in the background, mm. the Eiffel Tower. And the city yeah. of, of Paris agreed to participate to um, the celebration of Neymar joining the club and, and the tower is all lit and there's mm. a big lit sign that says, Bienvenue Neymar. Yeah. And, th- and there's a rumor that um, Tamin Al-Thani, Emir of Qatar, looking at mm. these pictures, said this... Is priceless. Yes. So, well, I, think, I mean, just to add to that as well, if I may, I think sure. what's interesting is, is when you look at when Qatar bought Paris Saint-Germain, I think when you looked at the actual logo of Paris Saint-Germain, the word Paris and Saint-Germain were in pretty much the similar size writing. Yes. And they've completely changed it now. Now Paris is, you know, is in massive writing. And then you've kind of got this footnote of Saint-Germain at the bottom. So that just goes to show, you know, Qatar are really looking not just to benefit from the football club itself, but I think also the fact that, you know, they have a significant, you know, they have significant influence in one of the major, major global cities of the world. And that really makes up to a certain extent for the fact that Doha, Qatar's capital, is not yet a major global city. Um, And, you know, what what better way to, to flaunt your soft power than, to, you know, parade, um, you know, the, well, certainly the world's most expensive football, but, but also, you know, one of the most famous footballers right in front of arguably the world's most, you know, famous monument. So, you know, I think from that perspective, um, it's, it's a huge soft power success. Right. So why, why sports in particular? What, what's about sports that makes a country decide to invest in it so much you know, hoping to get a positive image improvement through the investment. Why, why sports and why, why football? Well, I, I think it's, you know, I mean, sports and things like music and entertainment are really, you know, they're, they're huge cultural influences in our lives. So say, for example, I invited five random people around to my apartment tonight. You know, we may have a conversation of politics, but we may not. You know, we may talk about what's on the news. We may not. But I can assure you, we would probably definitely be able to have a conversation around sport or music. You know, everyone that we know has a a, a like for sport or music. You very rarely find someone who doesn't like either. So, you know, Qatar has tapped into, uh, given sport, is an industry here which has huge, huge appeal. I mean, you look at what are the most global things we have in this entire world. And I think there's nothing more global than Olympic Games or a football World Cup. Right. You know, a cumulative figure of eight, uh, sorry, 30 billion 
you know, watched, I think, the last World Cup. That's a cumulative figure. I mean, finally something that's more global and enjoyed by as many people. There just isn't anything. So what Qatar has looked for, soft power, let me, let me explain it this way, I guess. Sure. If soft power is about attraction, and I asked you if someone was attractive, you may say yes or no, but you'd only be able to tell me if they're attractive if you know who they are, if you'd first seen them. Mm-hmm. So look at Qatar, for example, a country that has, you know, it's a quite a new country, it gained independence in 1971, and it's not been a very well-known country. Go back 20 years, Qatar was not a very well-known country on the international stage. But since acquiring the World Cup in December 2010, you know, virtually everyone knows who Qatar is now to a certain extent. Right. Yeah. So what the, the beauty of sport really is two things. First of all, because it has such mass popular appeal, it's a great way to introduce yourself, but also your soft power to international audiences. And the second thing is, there's a lot of prestige involved in sport. If you finish in the top 10, the Olympic medal table, or, you know, you get to the semi-final, the final of the World Cup, there's a huge amount of prestige in this. You just don't have to look too far to look at how much money countries are spending on, you know, World Cups, but also the development of athletes. And of course, if you can host a major event as well, such as a World Cup, it's a fantastic way to show everyone who's going to be attending the World Cup or watching it on TV you know, what you're really all about. Mm. So what you have to offer in tourism terms, you know, the hospitality of your people, you know, your ex, you know, exquisite architecture, whatever that may be. So sport really, I think, and particularly football, can offer Qatar and its soft power, something that very, very few other industries can. Right. So how would you compare, actually, um, in terms of, of impact on, on the country of Qatar, um, hosting the World Cup, And in parallel, owning Paris Saint-Germain, what's the difference? Why both? Well, I think that they they really serve two different purposes. The World Cup is a one-off event. Um, Now, Qatar has has been somewhat different to previous hosts, such as Brazil and South Africa, in that Qatar has had to wait 12 years to get this, well, between actually acquiring the event and then actually hosting it, which is very, very rare. So it's, it's been quite a long, drawn-out process. But World Cups do something very differently. World Cups will showcase what you're all about at home because the whole world is going to be watching Qatar for those four weeks. With Paris Saint-Germain, it's slightly different. Paris Saint-Germain, I think, is a much more longer-term project. Mm. This is not saying that Qatar is going to you know, host for a couple of years and then sell on to the highest bidder. And you know, this also gives Qatar a lot more influence and power within Europe and also within, you know, European football. I mean, European football is the heart and soul of football around the world. Right. So I, I think there's sort of, there's, there's sort of two different strategies really here, but behind the world cup, the world cup is, is really demonstrating the local to the global. But I think with Paris Saint-Germain, not only does it give Qatar a foothold outside of the Gulf, but also I think Paris Saint-Germain will potentially be, you know, it's a bit of a nest egg for Qatar as well. The country has roughly 60 years left of oil. Um, its natural gas will go on for many years. But Qatar are now starting to look at ways in which they can invest um, to make money for the next generation of Qataris. And I'll be honest with you, World Cups don't really make countries money. Um, right. A lot of the time, they actually put them into debt. However, if you can invest in a, a corporation, uh, which a World Cup isn't, but a football club is, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that's, that's again, it's another way to make a long-term profit to secure your own future, I guess. 
Do you think Manchester City was acquired by the United Arab Emirates for the same reasons Qatar bought Paris Saint-Germain? I, th I think it's certainly similar. I think it's a case, yes. I think the, the Manchester City football group were... That, that was certainly a soft power acquisition for Abu Dhabi. Um, I, I think perhaps it's more of a successful and diverse product than Paris Saint-Germain right. in that Man, you know, Manchester City are now linked with Sydney FC, New York City. You know, th There's really a global network going on there. And I think Manchester City is very much just the jewel in the crown within that network. Mm. So it's really more of a global um, cause and a global soft power strategy. I think Paris Saint-Germain, you know, Qatar, I know, bought had shares in other clubs, but I'm not sure that Qatar would go the same way that Man City are going or Abu Dhabi are going um, in terms of that. And look, I, th I think there's very different objectives there. I think Qatar want to turn Paris Saint-Germain, I think, very much into the next FC Barcelona. Right. They want to turn it not just into a financial product, which regularly turns over a lot of money, but it's the prestige of it. And, you know, I think if, if you look around the world before they signed Neymar, they were looking for thinking, you know, who is going to be the next Lionel Messi? Um, and up to that date, they'd signed players like David Beckham and Ibrahimovic, you know, mm -hmm. fantastic footballers, but were somewhat coming towards the end of their career right. a little bit. Um, you know, and I think with Neymar, it's, it's perhaps a little different. You know, Qatar very much want to turn Paris Saint-Germain into the next sort of Barcelona and turn it into a billion pound football club. Um, so, no, I, I, I think this, the, the goals are similar in terms of they're both soft power strategies with Man City and Paris Saint-Germain. But I think the actual strategy within that is slightly different, if I'm honest. Right. So Qatar seems to have a great understanding of Western media in general and, and how to use it. Um, I believe that actually Qatar Investment Authority just bought Miramax Studio. Yes. Um, so that goes back to, the, you know, the soft power investment in, in general. Um, but how predictable was the other side of being brought into the limelight? How predictable was the backlash, uh, which you, you call yourself a soft disempowerment in your paper? And how do you think the Qatari government uh, is dealing with it? It's it is a very difficult subject to, to to think about and discuss. To be honest, I think that the concept of softest empowerment was something that uh, I coined with my supervisor um, at a previous university at Loughborough, Richard Giulianotti, and it's still quite new. We're still developing it a little bit, but I think the one thing that we've noticed is that if soft power is about attraction and global sport is the stage in which you look to profile your own your own attractiveness it makes sense to look at it and think there's always going to be the potential for negative consequences so say for example we think of global sport as a stage like a theater stage and i come up onto the stage you know i may get all of my lines right you know on the night and you go away thinking wow that guy's a really really good actor he's done really well remembered all his lines mm -hmm. but there's always a chance i might get stage fright or i might forget my lines and i think this is what we're looking at with soft disempowerment now with the case of qatar i think what we've argued is that qatar was a state that was somewhat moving a bit too quickly You know, you look at, for example, Doha, um, you know, you look at the development in 20 years. I mean, it's unprecedented. The same in Dubai. These are countries who are developing at a very, very, very quick rate. 
Now, when you develop at such a quick rate, it's sometimes difficult to get your entire house in order. You know, you have some policies, for example, which are quite age old, which take a lot longer to change. So things like the Kafala sponsorship system, which Qatar has been critiqued on by The Guardian, Amnesty International and Human Rights Watch. That's one example of that. So I think with Qatar's soft disempowerment, it's really the outcome of the state having a somewhat over ambitious foreign policy. And I think they've just they've tried to do too much too quickly, if I'm honest. Now, obviously, there's a major backlash to that. And one question I constantly get asked is, you know, is Qatar's acquisition of the World Cup and things like Paris Saint-Germain, is it a good thing? Right. Uh, country. And I think, to be honest with you, it's far too early to tell. OK. Um, because I think at the moment you've got to look at Qatar was pretty much an unknown entity before they got the World Cup. Um, and since they bought Paris Saint-Germain particularly as well, they're, they're certainly known. But that's the first thing you have to do. And I think they're going to go through some, you know, some rocky road at the moment um, with the soft disempowerment. But it's too early to really tell whether or not it's going to be a success or a failure. I think in terms of how they can deal with it, I think a lot of it will come down to how they host the World Cup. So as I'm sure you'll know, there's been a lot of criticism on Qatar hosting the World Cup. Yeah. You know, it being a, um, you know, too hot, for example. OK, we'll move it to winter. You know, whatever, whatever else it may be, you know, the ability to actually host the World Cup in terms of numbers in Doha. Well, and, and you know, stories of corruption to get it, which people, yeah. people still are in denial that to actually host a World Cup, you need to grease a few hands here and there, whether you are Qatar, France or Germany. But, you know, that's my own opinion. And the Guardian article that started it all um, about the absolutely horrible conditions of migrant workers in Qatar... And now if you go to Google and type Qatar and let Google finish the sentence, you will see the actual direct results of that self-disempowerment. And you don't see any positive side um, of uh, maybe the only positive um, thing so far for Qatar is that people, like you say, people know where it is. They are familiar with the country now, but the images, feelings, emotions attached to this country seem so far to be rather negative, mostly negative than, than positive. Yeah, I, th I think it's a case of, I and mean, I think, first of all, you have to also be a little cautious in where you're looking. I think, you know, the, the, the West has not somewhat ganged up on Qatar, but there is a certain Western sort of discourse and narrative at the moment. And, you know, the common narrative is to bash Qatar a bit. For years. So if, you look, if you're looking at The Guardian and everything else, you're going to get that Western perspective. Mm -hmm. You know, Read the more local papers, for example, papers perhaps else, elsewhere in the world. It may not be such a negative stance, um, but that's that's media politics, I guess. Um, yeah, I, I, th I think it's a case of, look, Qatar wanted to use the World Cup really to, to positively introduce themselves to the world. And the softest empowerment bit comes in and it's ironic. The one thing that they've used or tried to use to put, paint themselves in a positive light has actually painted themselves in a very negative light, mm -hmm. as we say, human rights, bribery, corruption, whatever it may be. And look, I, th I, I think the criticism is going to continue until they get the actual World Cup, or until it actually is hosted, until it starts. You know, it, it, it's really a question here of whether is it going to get better or is it a case of, you know, let's just make sure it doesn't get worse. Because if you imagine they hosted a very poorly organised World Cup, I mean, the media would have an absolute field day. So... Again, it's difficult to tell whether it will come up positively right. or it's just a case of making sure it's not as negative as it could be. Um, 
But time will tell. I mean, it makes it a very interesting topic of debate, of course. Yes, and also some of the backlash Qatar is getting in the media is borderline ridiculous sometimes, but some is, is completely deserved, especially the migrant worker situation. Um, but as a result, international pressure by the media uh, has translated into um, some diplomatic action. The, um, the UN has put pressure on Qatar to change its um, Khalifa system. We'll explain um, in a, a later part of the podcast what the Khalifa system is. Um, and, and so Qatar has improved conditions um, of its migrant workers, and it, it is a great thing to witness. Um, long, long, long point to my question. Um, uh, overall, the sheer amount of trashing in the media raised the question, was it a good idea for Qatar to host the World Cup and, um, by Paris Saint-Germain? I think, as, as I say, it is, it is very, very difficult because we're only at the beginning of both. The World Cup hasn't been hosted yet, and you know it's only been six or so years since actually Qatar purchased Paris Saint-Germain, so we don't know. I think... If, the only thing I will say is I think both the World Cup and Paris Saint-Germain is going to be an incredible and I think it will be a positive learning experience mm. for Qatar and the foreign policy makers because I think Qatar are very good at having an over ambitious foreign policy. Mm. You know, the World Cup, they are not ready to host the World Cup. And I don't mean host the World Cup in terms of build stadiums and make sure everyone is safe. That's just the actual hosting of the sport. I mean, the politics that surrounds it, you know, they're, they're, they're too over. The media will always follow sports mega events and criticize hosts. What, you know, look at Brazil and the riots, for example, mm-hmm. you know, South Africa and the underdevelopment and so on, or displacement and gentrification. You know, media are always going to do that. Now, Qatar for the media is, you know, like a really, it's like a, a lavish lunch because it's such, it's, you know, they have an absolute field day in criticizing the country because it's so far behind in some of its policies compared to, Western, you know, right. Northern liberal democracy. So I think that's what's happened is Qatar have basically been very ambitious, but been a bit over ambitious and a bit too quick. And I think actually with Paris Saint-Germain, to a certain extent, it could well be the same. And I look at the Neymar transfer um, and, you know, before Coutinho went a couple of days ago for 145 million, you look at the almost 200 million euro paid for Neymar. I mean, that is ridiculous, you know. And I just wonder whether, again, this is an example of Qatar being too ambitious Mm. and whether or not football, FIFA, UEFA and the Premier League will put pressure on countries like this to implement some sort of greater financial regulation, you know, tighter, you know, tighter financial fair play regulation. Right. And it may just be one of those things where Qatar looks back and thinks to itself, maybe, again, this was an example of where we were too ambitious and now it's coming back to bite us. Yeah, I mean, again, a country acquiring a football club is is a completely new concept. Unbelievable, yes. But at the same time, people were just fine with um, corporations not acquiring, but mainly financing uh, sports clubs. And um, in the US, in San Diego, people go to the Petco Stadium to to watch some, some sports, and nobody seems to have a problem with that anymore. So maybe maybe the Qataris and maybe the the UAE people are right, and uh, we'll get used to this. 
and maybe yeah, yeah maybe the the football instances will adapt. But overall, this is a huge bet, isn't it? It's fascinating. It's fascinating. It is. Yeah, it's very very it's very fascinating to watch. Very, um, very ambitious. Watching, I mean, the one thing I just finished the PhD on Qatar. And, you know, it's a state, it moves so quickly. I, the second I finished one chapter, I almost had to rewrite it because something new would happen. You know, you have the Gulf crisis or a new piece of information about Qatar and bribery. So it's very fascinating, but it moves so quickly. And I think, you know, I, I live in Manchester and you have obviously the Etihad Stadium and the Manchester City Group. And, you know, from what I can tell, they're viewed very, very positively in the local community as they're doing good for local community, both from a football perspective and from a business, you know, community perspective. Right. I'm sure, I, I don't know, you would know better, but I'm sure people in Paris, you know, it'd be interesting to know what they think of the Qatari owners of Paris Saint-Germain. Yeah, very positive. And, I mean, so, and I think, you know, um, but I just think, I, I just I just feel that with the Neymar transfer, Qatar is somewhat, it's, it's almost like a power game. They're somewhat trying to test the whole idea of financial fair play and the, <laughs> you know, the kind of morality of sport and football. Right. And I just wonder whether or not this may, as I say, come back and bite them, you know, uh, and actually encourage greater regulation from UEFA or FIFA. We'll see. But. Right. So, Paul, you live in the Manchester area, right? Yes. Uh, final question. City or United? Oh, uh, I'm actually an Arsenal fan. Oh, um, boy. So <laughs> okay. I'm somewhat indifferent. Um, however, I was uh, going back to the good old days of the Unbeatables with your Thierry Henry's and your Robert Perez's. Mm-hmm. Um, wasn't the biggest fan of United. So I'd have to say I'm more of a blue than a red. Okay. <laughs> well, Paul, thanks a lot for your time. And um, this, is, this is brilliant. Um, Thank you. And we are done. Thanks again. Bye now. So we talked about Qatar's history, its current situation, overall strategy, its use of soft power. Now we're going to talk about the more controversial aspects of this country. Qatar has been accused of supporting terrorism, a claim it refutes, and has also been accused of using slave labor on its World Cup construction sites, a fact it never actually denied. So let's start with the accusations of supporting terrorism. The U.S. State Department under Obama declared that some Qatari nationals were involved in funding jihadist groups in Syria, Iraq, and Libya during the Arab Spring. The Qatari government denied any involvement with these individuals, but were accused by the U.S. to turn a blind eye and let these nationals roam around freely in a gulf. A few of them were actually arrested, but the matter is still in development, as it seems. Qatar, though, never did hide its support of the Muslim Brotherhood, a quote-unquote terrorist group, according to Saudi Arabia, a political party, according to Qatar, and the U.S., as a matter of fact. The Muslim Brotherhood ended up winning the elections in Egypt, fair and square, but Saudi Arabia was backing the military regime with the blessing of the U.S. and toppled the newly elected government. Some generals have been running the country since, a long tradition in this part of the world. In Syria, Libya, Egypt and Iraq, Qatar was backing up factions fighting the ruling regimes, 
as Saudi Arabia was selling with these regimes. Al Jazeera was giving a voice to the voiceless trademark, now taking the streets and even sometimes taking up arms. The Arab Spring failed. The generals and dictators are still ruling the Arab world. Assad kept control of Syria. Qatar lost. Now Saudi Arabia is trying to make them pay. If Qatar supports terrorism, well, quite a few Western countries also did. The US funded Al-Qaeda in Afghanistan during the Soviet invasion. We didn't call them terrorists back then. We called them Mujahideen or freedom fighters. Nowadays, when Islamist factions are fighting governments we don't like, we call them rebels. When they're fighting governments we do like, we call them terrorists. Israel backed Hamas in order to undermine the secular socialist resistance of the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization, in the 1970s. So of course the US doesn't support terrorism, neither did Israel, neither does Qatar. But if they're not supporting terrorism, they for sure are playing the dangerous game of international politics. A game that's normally played by much bigger countries with much more substantial military power. Qatar thinks they can play the game with soft power, not hard power. It's never really been done before. But there's only 300,000 Qataris. It's not like they had another choice. As Paris Saint-Germain fans and citizens of the world, we can understand Qatar is playing the dirty game of international politics. But we can accept, won't accept, the treatment of migrant workers in this country. It's not like Qatar is exploiting migrant workers from poor Asian countries by design. In many ways, it's even worse than that. It is by culture that it's doing so. It is a cultural, civilizational issue that is exploding in their face as they are presenting themselves as a modern country, a place of reason and knowledge in the Arab world. An Arab world that's been looking for an example to follow, a cultural leader for several decades, has been searching for a way to embrace the 21st century while keeping its identity and many of its traditions. There's a tradition though, a law, that the Arab world in the Gulf region can throw down the toilet. It's the kafala system. It's a sponsorship system used to monitor migrant laborers working primarily in the construction and domestic sectors in Lebanon, Bahrain, Iraq, Jordan, Kuwait, Oman, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and Qatar. Under the kafala system, All foreign workers are required to have a Qatari sponsor to be able to enter and work in Qatar. The sponsor is the employer. 
They are granted the power to decide if the worker has the right to change jobs or even to leave the Emirate. The system keeps workers from protesting anything whatsoever. Working or living conditions, or even not being allowed to go home, to leave the country. The whole process has been basically privatized. Kafala regulations are overseen by each country's Ministry of Interior. Workers' immigration status is treated as a security issue, not as a labor issue. This industrial anarchy allowed by the Kafala system is an abomination. And for Westerners, it is reminiscent of the conditions of coal worker families in 19th century Europe. 19th century. The Western world's labor movements of the late 19th and early 20th century are a direct result of the exploitation of workers by industries, which was back then culturally accepted, until it wasn't anymore, because mind and values evolved and changed the culture. There is no official count about the number of workers who died on construction sites in Qatar since the country was given the hosting of the 2022 World Cup. Human Rights Watch estimated that hundreds of Nepalese, Indian and Filipino workers have died already. There's about 1.5 million migrant workers on construction sites in Qatar. An estimated 300,000 of them work on World Cup-related construction sites. In 2014, when the bulk of the construction started, Gilles Lothor, a representative from an international construction worker labor union, visited with his team some Belgian, Spanish, American and French companies' construction sites in Doha. What we saw, and I quote, was thousands of workers on a single site with the sun beating down. The companies work with 40 different subcontractors, put the people up in slums, and then they say, Qatar is wonderful. We're making double-digit profits. End quote. The same French companies that work on renovating French stadiums for Euro 2016 are involved in several World Cup construction sites in Qatar. Labor laws are strong and enforced in France. Not yet in Qatar. But things are finally changing. Facing protests and criticisms by NGOs, by unions like the International Labour Organization, and being absolutely destroyed in the Western media, as it all started with a 2013 article by the British newspaper The Guardian, Qatar finally started to improve things. There was first a lot of talks and no action, promises and charters. FIFA finally recognized the problem and met with international unions, resulting in asking Qatar to report to it on the state of affairs. At the end of last year, the International Trade Union Confederation claimed to have secured the agreement of the government of Qatar of ending the kafala system, as entry and departure of foreign workers is now decided by a Qatari government agency, no longer by private interests. The agreement is also to improve significantly the physical and employment situations for migrant workers in Qatar. Things do look better. Qatar is opening to the modern world, 
and the modern world is changing Qatar. The country has had an impact on Paris Saint-Germain, and perhaps Paris is having an impact on Qatar too. There is a lot at stake here. If the kafala system just ended in Qatar, it is still in use in many other Gulf states and Arab nations. A global conscience is emerging. Human rights, worker rights, are promoted by democracies and their mass media. There's a trend, a current of progress and modernity going on in the Arab world, clashing with some aspects of the culture. The World Cup in Qatar will take place in four years. Every article, newsflash, tweet, post or comment on Reddit, good or bad, about the situation of migrant workers in the country, the Gulf region and the Arab world as a whole, has to be welcomed and encouraged. As PSG fans, we must do our part by voicing our repulsion for the laissez-faire of the Qatari government about the lack of basic rights of its migrant workers and their abysmal work conditions. Qatar may very well succeed in upgrading its culture, its values about worker conditions and human rights in the country. If they do, they will become the example to follow in the Arab world and be the foundation upon which a real Arab spring can blossom. We really hope that you enjoyed this podcast. We try to be as informative, factual, and entertaining as we could. All the sources we use for the writing and production of this podcast are listed on our blog. Same for the music bits. Athena, the Acid Arab Collective, and Hamoud Al-Sima all deserve a, a wider audience. Mikhail Ipolitov Ivanov too, but he died in 1935, so he probably doesn't care much. I'd like to thank my daughter Emma for the great help she gave me in the research part of this project and from preventing this podcast from being too boring. I'd like also to thank my good friend Robbie, who, besides being a Tottenham fan and a wanker, was right about the tone, the shtick, we should adopt for this podcast. Thanks for listening. I'll talk to you soon.